today is Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 16. I've called it, God the faithful shepherd feeds his flock. So let's do a memory verse together. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Fantastic. Oh, Lord, thank you for that promise, Lord. We say it every week, but Lord, help us not to forget what it means, Lord. We can't do it on our own. Help us not to try to do things on our own strength. We can't save ourselves. We can't change ourselves. It's all by your spirit, the power of your spirit. However, there is a work that we need to do, and that is we need to cooperate with you, and we need to allow you to do your will in our lives. And often that means making choices to cleanse ourselves from sin, to stop doing things, to put into action the things that you want to do. Lord, we work according to your power, but it's still us working. So we just pray you help us to come to that balance, Lord, where we're not doing things in our own strength, but at the same time we're not just doing nothing. So we just pray that we'll be trusting you to show us what to do and relying on your power to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, foolish shepherds and the good shepherd. Jesus is the Good Shepherd, as we know from the New Testament, right? Well, in the Old Testament, as we're reading today, chapter 34 of Ezekiel, we see that Jehovah or Yahweh, God, is the Good Shepherd. And shepherds refer to both spiritual and civil leaders, and we're going to see the devastating effects of poor and selfish leadership and how it negatively affects the people under them. And God promises to deal with the ungodly leaders who scatter the flock for their own gain. Now, in the second half of the chapter, which is next week, it's all about what promises that God gives to Israel. And they'll be fulfilled in the millennial reign, but that's for next week. So let's read verses 1 to 16 now. And this is all about God being our good shepherd, as well as God's view of the foolish shepherds. So, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field where they were scattered. My sheep, notice that, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Do you kind of see God's heart in that? Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, 
and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd. Nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. And I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So, Basically, this first half is God speaking to and warning the foolish prophets, as well as revealing his heart as the good shepherd. So, verses 1 and 2, I'm titled this, Woe to the Foolish Shepherds. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? So in verse 1 there, it says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So in that culture, in the Near East in that day, civil leaders, kings and spiritual leaders, the priests and the prophets were referred to as shepherds. They were all leaders. They were all in leadership. And you got examples there like Joshua in Numbers 27, 17 and King Saul in Second Samuel 5 verse 2 as civil leaders who were referred to as shepherds. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17, 16, is referred to a shepherd as well, and he's a spiritual leader. And I quote here, Primarily, the shepherds refer to Israel's kings and political leaders. Secondarily, it speaks to any of us who are shepherding people as pastors, elders, employers, or parents. And that's from John Corson. So what we're going to do today is break this down and apply it to family as well as the church and Israel. So the range is broad. It basically means that anyone I have authority over, whether it be civil, parental, or spiritual, I have a responsibility to them to lead them in a way that glorifies God and not abuse my authority over them or renege on my responsibilities toward them. So let's have a look at what Peter says about what it means to be a good shepherd or pastor or parent. So. I think it's really easy to see that this definition of leadership can be applied to everything, any kind of leadership position. It's very general, even though it's specifically written for the church. So 1 Peter 
5, 2-4, it says, Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you would get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honour. So, can you see the three contrasts? Willing leadership or willing service versus grudging service. Eager to please God or you're doing it for what you can get out of it. You lead by a good example where people willingly follow you or you push the sheep instead of leading them and you force them to do things. You intimidate, dominate, manipulate to get things done. Now, another thing to notice from these verses is that anyone in a position of leadership even if you're the CEO of Microsoft, whatever it might be, you are still an under-shepherd. There's still someone who's the boss of you. (laughs) It's Jesus himself, right? And so Jesus is going to be the one who is going to judge each of us, doesn't matter who we are, for how we use the position of leadership that God has given us. And that includes us as parents. So have I used my position of leadership to build up those I was leading or did I use it for my own gain? And in verse 2, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Again, all leaders should be servant leaders, whether parents, civil leaders or spiritual leaders. And anytime God puts us in a position of leadership, it's an opportunity to serve others, die to self and esteem others as being more important than ourselves. So. Leadership is an opportunity to serve and sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of those that God has put us over. And Jesus is the ultimate example. And I thought it's worth reading a few verses that describe the right attitude behind leadership. Luke 9.23 Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And in the NLT it says, You must give up your own way and take up his cross and follow me. So denying yourself is giving up your own way, giving up what you want to do what is best for the other person. Philippians 2.4 Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but for the interests of others. John 10.11 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, willing to sacrifice for those that he has authority over. And Acts 20.28 Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So, coming back to the church, focusing on church for a minute, why is Jesus so invested in his church? Why is it so important to him? Because of its incredible value. It was purchased with his own blood, his own life. There's nothing more important in his eyes. Now, verses 3 to 4, I've titled this Greedy and Negligent Shepherds. It says, You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. You see this repeated thing here about feeding the flock? The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So in verse 3 it says, You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool, but you do not feed the flock. Now, is it okay for a leader to make a living 
from the people that he's leading. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to eat, right? They're providing a service. They should get a reward for their service, yeah? But there's a big difference between getting a fair reward for your labor and exploiting or neglecting the people. So I'll just go back to that verse. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool, but you do not feed the flock. They're not carrying out their primary function. This is specific to the church, right? And in Ezekiel's day, the leaders of Israel. Back then, many of the leaders were self-serving and only looking to increase their own enjoyment and pleasure. Now, David Guzik applies this to the church. He says, The New Testament clearly teaches that those who serve God's people have the right to be supported by those they serve. And I'll read a couple of those verses in a minute. Yet that is a right that can be and should be set aside when it is better for the kingdom of God to do so. So, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 describes how workers in the church are worthy of a wage. So it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. However, as David Guzik mentioned, there's a time when a minister of the gospel should not be seeking to be paid. Like Paul's example here in Acts 20, 33-35. I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So in some churches, Paul was supported by the church. In some churches, he wasn't. He supported himself. And he even worked to support those who were helping with him. So it shouldn't be something that is demanded by the pastor. Is whatever is best for the flock at the time. So verse 3, you do not feed the flock. And this is the main problem, the lack of spiritual nourishment. So back then, there was lots of false prophets. The Israelites made their choice to listen to the false prophets. You can't just blame the false prophets and false teachers. But their diet, the food they gave, was bad food. It was false doctrine. It was false hope. So what I want to look at now is how does a godly leader in a position of spiritual leadership, again, pastor or parent, feed those in their care? So the Bible has a lot to say about this. So let's have a look. So firstly, Jeremiah 3.15. And I've said about this, God's heart is to feed us with knowledge and understanding. So it simply says, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So what's God's heart? For the shepherd, the teacher, to feed the people with knowledge and understanding, obviously from the word of God. So God's heart is for us to grow, and so a genuine and godly shepherd who shares the desires of God's heart will also seek to feed those under him with knowledge and understanding. Again, both pastor and parent. Now, interestingly, Every Christian man is the pastor of his own home. He is the spiritual leader. 
Now, it's not that mothers can't teach the kids. Yes, they can, they should. But the Christian husband should take the lead in this area of the home. And we see this in Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 4. I'll read from the Amplified Version. Fathers, do not irritate and provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them to resentment, but rear them tenderly in the training and discipline and the counsel and admonition of the Lord. So that's the role of the Christian husband. Now, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. And this verse refers to the consequences of not feeding on the word of God. The writer of Hebrews says this, There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. So who's he talking to? Christians, right? Christians who are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature. And through training, notice that through training, that takes your effort, your work, have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So I want to pull out three things from this passage in Hebrews. Firstly, their comprehension of the scriptures was limited, and therefore the writer of Hebrews was limited in what he could teach them. He says, there is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. So, firstly, I wish the people back then would have been alert and had a good appetite because then he could have told us more, yeah? But he says, I want to explain more, but I can't. And so we're stuck with what these people were able to hear. But these people had no appetite for the word of God and were therefore spiritually dull. So each of us needs to ask ourselves, what is my appetite like for the word of God? Do I hunger for the word of God or am I spiritually dull? Secondly, consider this is not just talking about Bible knowledge, but also obedience when it says, and doesn't know how to do what is right. And this is the basic principle. Bad doctrine and ignorance leads to sin. If people don't know the right thing to do, then they obviously won't do it. And thirdly, and very tragically, verse 12. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. So many of these believers that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to have been saved for a long time. It says, so long now. Can you hear the frustration in his voice? You know, you've been saved for so long now. What's going on? You know what? Nothing's changed. This has been a problem in the church right from the start. I've got a quote from Answers in Genesis. This is the title. Ignorance of the Bible isn't just a problem in our culture, it's a problem in the church, and it's scandalous. And it's focusing on America, but I'm pretty sure it mirrors Australia as well, and the Western world. While America's evangelical Christians are rightly concerned about the secular worldview's rejection of biblical Christianity, 
we ought to give some urgent attention to a problem much closer to home. Biblical illiteracy in the church. This scandalous problem is our own, and it's up to us to fix it. How bad is it? Researchers tell us that it's worse than most could imagine. Only half of all Christians can name the four Gospels. That's pretty bad, eh? Only half of all Christians can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the twelve disciples. According to data from the Pew Research Center, nearly half don't even realize that the Golden Rule is not one of the Ten Commandments. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. Most Christians in the United States believe the Bible teaches God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) And some even believe this quote is a Bible verse. A series of Barna surveys show that only 19% of born-again Christians, that is, evangelical Christians, not the Catholics, hold to the simplest elements of a basic biblical worldview. So that's the state of our church today, based on the statistics and people being surveyed, what they know about the Bible. If this is what the level of education in the church, what's the world like, you know? People don't even know who Jesus is if they go through public school. Now moving on to 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Why feeding on the word is so important. It says, So get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave, that means to long for, yearn after, or deeply desire, pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. So the pure milk, why does it say pure? It says pure spiritual milk. Well, pure means unadulterated, true, or genuine. Because if you're going to feed on false doctrine, you're just going to get sick. And it's not going to do you any good. You need to desire pure spiritual milk. So I want you to look at the first verse we just read there, in verse 1. So get rid of all evil behavior, right? Then it says, so that you grow into a full experience of salvation. So basically you've got to grow out of being worldly, that's deceit and unkind speech, etc. And then we can grow into the image of Christ. So how do we grow and change? How do we go from being deceitful and jealous and, and speaking unkindly to being in the image of Christ? Well, there's only one way. You can't do it yourself. It's not by self-effort. So don't try. You need to make the choice today to crave, yearn after, and deeply desire only the pure milk of the word. Again, not milk that has been corrupted or adulterated or changed or diluted by the traditions and the false teaching of men. That milk will only poison you. So as we're in the word and we have faith that it's true and we're willing to obey it, then the Holy Spirit will change us to become like what we're reading. 1 Timothy 4.6 We are nourished by the truth. It says, If you lay all these instructions before the brethren, you will be a worthy steward and a good minister of Christ Jesus, ever nourishing your own self on the truths of the faith and of the good Christian instruction which you have closely followed. But notice what it says there. Ever nourishing your own self on the truths of the faith. You are feeding yourself. You are nourishing yourself. Matthew 4.4, we are primarily sustained by the word of God, not physical food. 
and you look at me and you say, hang on a sec, you know, I'm going to die if I don't eat physical food. Well, it's more true in the spiritual than it is in the physical. Think about that. Your spirit will die very quickly if you don't get spiritual food. You know, we can go 40 days without physical food, can't we? You know? What's the condition of your spirit if you go 40 days without reading the Word? Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need the daily bread. So just a summary for that, you do not feed the flock, feeding, teaching the word. A godly and faithful shepherd is one who faithfully teaches God's word to the people. We must be nourished by words of faith, understanding that the word of God is a spiritual nourishment that we must partake of if we are going to continue to grow into the image of Christ. So don't remain a babe, grow up and keep on maturing. Now it says in verse 4, The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who are sick. So this is a negligent shepherd who's just out there to benefit from the sheep, but not to help the sheep. Unfortunately, there's churches like that who don't actually help the people, they just use the people. Now, in verse 4, it's got five terms here. Strengthened, healed, bound up, brought back, and sought. And David Guzik has a good comment here. He says, These words describe the actions of the faithful, godly shepherd. Many of these ideas are included in the concepts of equipping and edifying described in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. The variety of terms suggest that the godly shepherd will have something of the wisdom of a good doctor able to diagnose the condition of the sheep. So I like that. As parents, as Bible teachers, as mature Christians, we need to be able to diagnose what's going on with people so we can help them. Yeah, And the more we know the word, then the more we can do that, the better we can do that. So where there was weakness, he looks for the sheep to be strengthened. Where there is illness, he looks for the sheep to be healed. Where there are wounds or brokenness, he looks for them to be bound up. It's like putting a cast on. Where the sheep are disobedient, he looks for them to be brought back, you know, church discipline. Where the sheep are lost, he wants them to be sought. Again, that's from David Guzik. Verse 4 says, But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So this is the opposite. This is the opposite of the care, wisdom, and compassion of a faithful shepherd. And I'm going to go as far as say this is a satanic style of leadership, where it's manipulation, it's cruelty, it's forced. Why am I saying satanic? Well, there's only two styles of leadership. There's servant leadership, which is Christ-like, and then there's Satan's way of doing things, which is the opposite, yeah? So it's either Christ-like or it's not. One is building people up and one is tearing people down. So Jesus tells us very clearly that this kind of cruel, manipulative, threatening, coercive, lording over others style of leadership should never ever be found in the church. And he says that in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. I'll read it from the NLT. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world, okay, in this world, lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. Again, this model of servant leadership. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you remember a time when Jesus demonstrated his servant leadership? He did something for the disciples. He washed their feet, yeah. But the greatest act of servanthood, the greatest act of sacrifice that Jesus did for other people was to give his life as a ransom for many. He died in their place. Now, this doesn't mean that leaders won't have to make difficult decisions that are going to upset people. This is not saying that if you're a good leader, everyone's going to love you and everything's going to be fine. No. As a good leader, you do what is best for the people. Sometimes I might not appreciate that. And that's also very important for parenting, yeah? Speaking the truth in love will hurt people. Why? Because there's sin there, right? But it's a good hurt because it leads to repentance. It's like a doctor never enjoys telling people that they have cancer. But if they don't tell them, the person will die. If they do tell them, there's a chance for healing. So, verses 5 and 6. This is the sad consequences of bad shepherding, which is isolation. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field where they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock, notice that, my sheep, my flock, was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. And John Corson says, When the sheep were scattered, they became prey to wolves. This is not surprising, for whenever a sheep is in isolation, he is vulnerable to annihilation. That's why we, as sheep, need each other. Verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field where they were scattered. So, you know, there's a lot of people today who have been hurt by bad leadership in the church. And what's these worldly leaders coerce people to serve, to give, to sacrifice. But when they're exhausted, they just let go. You don't want to come? See you later. And more people come in to feed the machine with their money and the time. So these people who have been used and abused, they just drift away. And they're thinking that, well, no leader is better than a bad leader. And so they just you know, go home and try and be a Christian all by themselves. But it's not safe. They are in grave danger. Have a look what happens to them. They become food for all the wild beasts of the field. And so the application is really clear. A Christian in isolation is an easy meal for the devil. The wolves will attack the sheep which is isolated, yeah? So First Peter 5, 8 and 9. Peter says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same suffering you are. So look at that. Remember that your family of believers, your family, yeah, are going through the same suffering as you are. If we remain in our church family, we can be strong. But if we split and want to just go by ourselves, then we are making ourselves wolf food. Food for the wolves and lions. 
So, again, we are only strong in our faith if we are in community, working together with other believers in the local church. So this message is really clear in Ezekiel here. If you're in a worldly church with worldly leadership, don't stop going to church altogether. Rather, just leave the worldly church and find that godly church, one that teaches the word and displays servant leadership. It's like having a bad experience with a doctor. You don't just stop going to the doctor completely. You just die of whatever disease you're going to get, right? Rather, you find a better doctor. Yeah, so people who stop going to church because they've had a bad experience are like people who stop going to the doctor because they've had a bad experience with the doctor. It's kind of foolish. And Hebrews 10, 24-25. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I'm going to read that quote from John Corson again. When the sheep scattered, they become prey to wolves. This is not surprising, for whenever a sheep is in isolation, he is vulnerable to annihilation. That is why we, as sheep, need each other. Now in verse 6, my sheep, my flock. This is how God describes his sheep. Yeah. So I remember a little story for you here. I was at Wongatha and I was talking to someone there and we were talking about our churches and I said, oh, my church. And as I said it, I thought, oh, no, that's not right. It's not my church. And so after the conversation was finished, I left and about two minutes later, I didn't get out the main exit. I came back and I said, I need to apologize. I'm saying it's my church. No, it's not. It's God's church. It's the church of Christ. It's not my church. It's God's church. It's just I happen to pastor there. So David Guzik says, Godly shepherds should never use the phrase my church in any other way than indicating the church entrusted to them, the congregation they serve and are a part of. And my church should never be used in a possessive sense. The church always belongs to Jesus himself. And you can see Matthew 16, 18. Now I'm going to apply this to families. Who do our children belong to? God, right? They are on loan. We are given our kids for about, you know, let's say an average of 20 years, right? And then they, you know, go off and get married and, you know, they become a new family unit and stuff like that. So we've got like 20 years max, I reckon, to have influence over our kids. After that, they're their own person and they're out there. They've made their decisions. We can help them, but this is the time, the first 20 years or so, yeah, if we get that much time. So just as a pastor has great responsibility and accountability to lead God's church in a way that brings glory to God, so there's a great responsibility and accountability for Christian parents that raise their children in the same way. So will we as parents make the deliberate, conscious and intentional choice to raise the children God entrusted to us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord or just basically do nothing and by default allow them to be influenced by and grow up to become like the world? allowing them access to worldly music, TV, movies, books, computer games, internet content, and also trying to satisfy them with material gifts. Now, it's not like you have to really try and do this. It's just what the world does. And, you know, it's just normal. It's normal for the world to do this. And we 
if we're not careful, we get sucked into this. But I want to remind you that this evil world system we live in is evil. Okay, It's designed by Satan himself to draw people away from God and get them to forget God. There is no neutral ground. Okay, There is no neutral ground. I'm going to read a verse from Joshua, and in that verse, or verses, it says, If they are to serve the Lord, they must first get rid of the foreign gods. And this is how it works in our homes as well. We must purge them of worldly influences to the best of our ability. Our children get enough worldly influence every time they leave the front door. When they talk to their friends from school and all that kind of stuff. Let's make our homes safe places where our children can grow up and not have to you know, fight against these other influences, where they're not led astray and their thinking is corrupted. So Joshua 24, 14 and 15, it says, So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever. How long for? Forever. The idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live now? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So again, notice, you can't be worldly and be godly. It says in James that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. It feels like it's okay to watch worldly TV. But it's not. The world is designed, this world system is designed by Satan to pull people away from God, to make people forget God. So, as for me and my house, the house family, (laughs) we will serve the Lord. This is our position, our decision. To the best of our ability, we will cut the worldly influence out of our house, replacing it with godly music, godly movies, books, and regular Bible reading. We want to give our children every opportunity to know Jesus as their saviour. That's our goal. That's our, our purpose. And it hasn't been easy. There's been some things over the years, and it's been a process. It's not something, oh, let's just do it. There was some stuff that we thought was okay, like you know, Mr. Bean. And yeah, it was funny. But there was a couple of rude ones in there. And I thought, no, it's all got to go. So all the Mr. Bean DVDs got chopped up. The kids did it. We told them why we were doing it, and they got the scissors and cut all the DVDs up. And they understood. And so now they have this understanding that, no, if it's got rude stuff in it, it's got a swear word in it, if it's got body parts, whatever, no, it's got to go. And so we've shown them what the standards are for our own house, and they've gone with that. It's good. And it also helps when they go to other people's houses too. They will walk out of the room if there's something there. That's not good where possible. Now, verse 6, a very sad phrase here. It says, no one was seeking or searching for them. Try and put yourself in God's shoes here. He loves these people very much. But the shepherds that he's put over the people have been unfaithful, uncaring, unconcerned. And the people have been scattered because they've been used and abused by these foolish shepherds these foolish leaders, whether it's civil or spiritual. 
And God is really sad. He's looking at them and he sees there's no one seeking or searching for them. He's seeing his own people, the people of Israel, wandering and spiritually homeless. And I reckon his heart is just breaking. So God is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And there is no greater demonstration of love or sacrifice possible than what Jesus has already given. John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So God by nature seeks and searches for the lost. He invites us to join him in his work of reconciling lost people to him. The lost people that he loves back to himself. So challenge for us today is will we join him starting with our own children if we are our parent? That's the best mission field we have is our own family. Now this is going to lead to the next section where God will hold the foolish shepherds accountable in verses 7 through 10. Therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, says the Lord God. Surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. So verse 10, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I quote from Paul, They have provoked me to displeasure to be their enemy, and I will appear and act so. They are enemies to my sheep, yet pretended to be shepherds. I will be an open enemy to them. So God is very displeased when the foolish shepherds hurt his sheep. They pretend to be good shepherds, yeah? They pretend to be nice, you know, uh, these church leaders and, you know, using people and getting the money off them, all that kind of stuff. You know, they come across as being nice, but actually, deep down, they're enemies because they're using the people for their own gain. In verse 10 it says, And I will require my flock at their hand. A quote from Block. It expresses the legal disposition of calling an evildoer to account, in this case holding the criminal shepherds accountable to the fate of the flock. And James 3.1 from the NLT it says, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more Strictly. Why? Because where there's more responsibility, there's more accountability, which means a much stricter standard of judgment. And again, we can apply this to parenting. The life and future of our children is at stake. While children ultimately make their own choices, that's true, yeah? We can't force them to be saved or not saved. It's their choice. They choose what kind of life they're going to live. But we can be an influence on them. What kind of influence are we going to be? A godly influence or a worldly influence? And that's what we're going to be responsible for before God. Verses 11 through 16, God the Good Shepherd will gather the scattered sheep. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. 
And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away and bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So, verse 11, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. So, as we read previously, God is going to discipline the foolish shepherds, but he's also going to himself find these people. He's going to be the faithful shepherd to Israel. And this is talking about him physically bringing the people back into Israel after they were dispersed with their exile. But it also applies spiritually as well. So I want to just come to an application here. It's really dangerous to put any one person on a pedestal and say, well, I'm going to look to him. Or as a child, even looking to your parents, I'm going to look to mum or dad. Okay. Any person has a potential to let people down. Okay, King David, as an example, he was a man after God's own heart. Well, he failed several times, big time. Okay, and he let people down. He would have disappointed those who followed him quite badly. But he was a man after God's own heart. So, what do we do? Well, we only follow a man or a person to the extent that they follow the Lord. Even Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So basically, imitate me in the ways that I imitate Christ. So none of us are perfect, and we do want to say, yeah, I'm an example of Christ, but only follow me as I follow the Lord. And so basically for us, just make sure you don't put anyone on a pedestal. It's happened in some churches. You know, the pastor's fallen and the people who get smashed, their faith is shattered because their faith was in the pastor and not God to a point. So just be careful with that. Just remember that any person can fail. Any person can fall. But God is always faithful. He's the one who's the over-shepherd, yeah? He's the one who's always working. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed I myself, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them. So who was the great shepherd? Well, it's God. And this whole chapter points to Yahweh or Jehovah being the good and perfect shepherd of Israel. Now, what happens in the New Testament? Jesus comes on the scene. And what does he say? What does he call himself? I am the good shepherd. Okay, and you can read all that in John chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. So this is yet another proof for the deity of Christ. When he says in the New Testament in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, he says it twice. He's referring back to the Old Testament, like these passages in Ezekiel 34, where God is the good shepherd, Yahweh Jehovah, and he's saying, I am that God. Jesus is God. Okay. And Jesus also shares a parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, 3-7. You can read that in your own time. Uh, verse 12, he is among his scattered sheep. Now, a way in which this was 
literally fulfilled is when Jesus came to earth and dwelt among his covenant people, Israel. So what did God do? He came down not as just a man who was going to die, but he came down as a shepherd to feed his flock. What did Jesus do most of the time? Teach the word of God, right? He was feeding his flock. He was trying to gather them in. Remember he said the day he rode in on the donkey, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. So he's a shepherd calling his people to him, but they wouldn't come. Now, in verse 12, it also says, on a dark and cloudy day, or a cloudy and dark day. So a quote from Taylor, and basically he says that this is referring to the end times. It's basically the ultimate fulfillment of this passage when God brings back his sheep will be when Jesus comes back at the second coming and then his people will reign with him for a thousand years on the earth. And in verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land. So this promise to gather Israel from the countries is also found in chapter 11, verse 17 and 36, 24. So three times in the book of Ezekiel, God has made this promise. And this is all a part of the new covenant. So these promises had a partial fulfillment in the return from exile, but still await their true and perfect fulfillment. That's David Guzik. Feinberg says, In beautiful and unforgettable words, Ezekiel predicted a literal return and restoration of the people of Israel to their own land. And notice it will be a regathering from world wide exile and dispersion. So that happened after Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. In Ezekiel's time, they just went to Babylon and then came back. But later on, 400 years later, 500 years later, the Romans dispersed the Jews worldwide. And so what we're seeing now is the gathering from the worldwide back into Israel. Wisby says, in Ezekiel's time, the Lord brought back his people from Babylon, but the picture here is certainly much broader than that, for the Lord spoke about countries. So why am I saying all this? Well, this is an exciting time to be alive. We are seeing prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. It started in the 1800s with the Zionist movement, when the Jews started going back to Zion, Jerusalem, and then accelerated when Israel became a nation in 1948. Now, it's not going to be completely fulfilled until Jesus comes back to earth at the second coming and brings all of Israel back into Israel and they rule and reign with him. But we see the beginnings of this. We see it happening. Israel is back in the land as a nation and God is showing that he is faithful to keep his promise. Now, verses 15 and 16, I will feed my flock, I will seek, bring back, bind up the broken and strengthen. God is the good shepherd. This is what God does. This is what God wants us to do to do with him, yeah? To feed the flock, to seek, to bring back, to bind up the broken and to strengthen. God wants us to join him in his work as he seeks to reconcile a lost world to himself. And we are his fellow workers. And you can see 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9. How does this work in the church? Well, God is working through the lives of all of us here today in this church so that we can all be strengthened, we can all be sought, we can all be brought back, we can all be bound up, we can all be strengthened, and we can all be fed. It's a work that God does communally through all of us working together. 
That's why we need to remain in fellowship. Remember, Jesus dwells amongst his church. And verse 16, I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So again, another warning against the proud sheep and the proud will need to be humbled. And we'll go into that next week. But as a conclusion, a summary, what does it feel like when we are submitted to God as the good shepherd of our soul? I'm just going to read Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. And this I found very comforting. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So you might say to me, these kids are driving me crazy. There's so much pressure at work. My marriage or family relationships are grievous to me. People I love are dying. I feel like I am weary and carry heavy burdens. So let's have a look at this promise. If I am weary and carry heavy burdens, it simply means I have yet to accept Jesus' invitation to come to me, to lay my burdens down at his feet and receive the rest that he promises me if I do. If I am to experience his rest, I must first come to Jesus and lay each and every burden at his feet and not try to carry it on my own strength. There's also another condition to this promise. All right, So that's the first one, is come to me. The second one is this, it's let me teach you. So we come to him and we allow him to teach us. We must have a teachable spirit. Now what's he going to teach us? He's going to teach us to be humble. Because I am humble and gentle at heart. He's going to teach us to be humble and gentle at heart. And then you will find rest for your souls. So if we remain proud and unteachable, we will not experience the rest of God. If I proudly continue through life thinking that I know best, then I will never experience God's rest. So that's how simple it is. Surrender your burden by giving it over to God and allow him to teach you to become like himself, humble and gentle at heart. So someone who doesn't read their Bible much, are they a teachable person? Are they allowing God to teach them? So the best place to start here is if you're carrying heavy burdens, is just start reading your word. Allow God to teach you. He literally says, let me teach you. He's not going to force you. And the come to me is also an invitation. So come to him, get into your word, let him teach you to become like him, humble and gentle at heart. Let's all read as a close for this message this morning, Psalm 23. So let's stand and read Psalm 23. It's a beautiful psalm. And uh, let's think about this as we go into the week. You ready? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, that's our hope, isn't it? Dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. So, Father, thank you. Lord, it's such an awesome understanding that you are always searching, you're always binding up, you're always seeking and healing. And Lord, you are the great shepherd. And we thank you for all the things you are constantly doing in the background. We thank you for our church. And we thank you that you are working amongst each one of us to do all these things. Lord, we are your hands and your feet, and we are working together to achieve these goals as we come together and submit to each other in the fear of the Lord. So help us to continue, we pray. Help us to not just continue, but to increase. Lord, to increase our dependence on you and each other and to become more vulnerable and and open and honest and just to realize that there's nothing special about us, but we're just clay vessels with a beautiful treasure inside. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus. We have the Father. We have God living inside of us. But we have this sinful nature, this human nature, this clay vessel, which is not very appealing. So help us to see the inner person, Lord, to realize that we are all new creations, those of us who are born again, and to just encourage each other to become who we already are. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to remind you that, you know, we've got all these things that we know we need to do as Christians, but if it's a heavy burden, it shouldn't be. Jesus says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And so if it's a heavy burden, Take it to him and become teachable. Just get into your word. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and through you to achieve those things that God is asking you to do.